some of the concepts that we see in this first part of Revelation and really throughout Revelation are foundational to the prophecy. In other words, you need to understand the concept to understand later parts of the prophecy. But there's also concepts in here that are foundational to our walk with God. That are foundational to us seeing and understanding who God is. And to me, if we spend time on those things, it's a Bible study well spent. Um, Because it's going to, if we can provide that foundation for you, then you're going to be able to go through the rest of Scripture and get a whole lot more out of it on your own in your personal study. I think it's 7.30. Let's go ahead and start with prayer. Lord, please bless this group of people who have dedicated this time to you. Bless the words that are said there. Interpret them to our hearts. Let the understanding come from the spirit and not from the mind. Lord, let this grow in us in a way that is meaningful to our lives every single day. Watch over those who are still on their way here and watch over us as we leave. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. All right. You should at this point have two handouts. One of the, they're from the table over there. One of them is titled The Roles of Jesus, and we're going to get to that pretty quick. The second one is titled In a Nutshell. You will get a nutshell every week, and a nutshell is a one-page summary of last week's lesson. So if you ever miss a lesson and you don't have time to listen to it off of the web, you can just read the one-page summary. You're right up there with us. Now, it, it won't have a lot of the proof. You know, I go to a lot of trouble to tell you why I think what I think or why we're interpreting things the way we're interpreting so you can make up your own mind. That, all that background is not in the nutshell. The nutshell is just here's the conclusions. Here's what we covered and here's the conclusions. The um, other handout, you can go ahead and pull out the roles of Jesus. Uh, and we want to start there because last week we talked about the authorship of the book of Revelation and the fact that John wasn't the author. He was just the scribe. He was just writing it down. But the authorship was the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, God the Father. We looked at the Holy Spirit last week, um, the seven spirits who are before the throne. And this week we want to start with Jesus in his role as defined as author. If you look at Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 5, the last author, the last part of the Trinity listed is Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So it's listed three roles of Jesus as author of Revelation. The first one is the faithful witness. If you looked at the Greek here, the word witness is martyr. Very interesting. Now, immediately, when we hear the word martyr, what pops into our mind? Crucifixion, death, burning, torture, all that kind of stuff. Believe it or not, that is not what that word means. The word martyr literally means someone who is testifying to or a witness of something. We have come to associate it with death and torture because of what men have done to Christians who are true 
witnesses of the truth. So that begs the question, what is Jesus a witness of? And if you look at the roles of Jesus, we're going to start kind of running down through some of these scriptures. Because we, as, quote, seasoned Christians, have in our heads a concept of who Jesus is, what he represents. We, you know, all the miracles are in there. We, you know, we have a real good background. But we want to know exactly what they're talking about in Revelation when they talk about Jesus is the witness. What is he witness of? Look at that first verse, John 18, uh, 37. Jesus comes um, before Pilate in that final day. And Pilate says, so you're a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. So Jesus, when, when faced at the final hour to sum up before everybody, in a nutshell, if you will, what was his mission? Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth. So then, what truth? Which truth? What, you know, what is he talking about? And you know what? That's exactly what Pilate said. Pilate said, if you, if, I didn't print the next sentence, but if you look in the scripture, the next thing Pilate said says, so what's truth? You know? Well, look at John 5.25. This is a, a more of an expanded version. This is still Jesus talking here. And the truth is that Jesus came to tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, that's a, and this isn't that passage, but that's what he's saying over again in this passage. And we're just going to read verse 25 through 29, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, right there, Jesus has summed up who he is and what he is a witness to. He is life, God, sourced from God, and he is a judge, also sourced from God. Those two things are being paired here. The whole rest of this, and where I've bolded for you, is Jesus says, you know what, you don't have to just believe me. If, if I'm the only one saying this, you can just throw it out as a crazy man in the desert. But, in addition to me, John came and he testified to me. The second thing were the, were the works, the miracles that he did. The third thing he lists is that God the Father himself testifies that Jesus is who he is. And the last thing, and the thing that Jesus found most damning to the Pharisees, was the scriptures testify to who he is. And he's not talking about New Testament there. That didn't even exist. He's saying the Old Testament scripture testifies as to who I am. And, and you say you're experts in that? And you don't even recognize me. So we would expect to see throughout Scripture and in, this, in the role as described in Revelation, a pairing of life and judgment in the role of Jesus. So let's look 
down here at Luke 24. It's the next verse. This is where Jesus is telling us to go out and be witnesses, presumably to the same truth, right? And hopefully we're on board with this. And, and what he tells them is, this is after his resurrection, he's um, talking to some of the disciples. He says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead. There's your reference to life. Okay. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. The repentance from the forgiveness of sins is the reference to judgment. Okay. Because we come under judgment for, right, for our sin. This is what man, we as in man, mankind. Jesus said that the old, right there, that the Old Testament scripture told about this. And if you go back and look, there's just tons and tons of places. The, the one that I picked out to, to show you is Isaiah 55. And it's kind of a fun one to, to look at. It's a long passage. We're not going to read the whole thing. But it starts out with ho, as in, hey, you, you know. And, and if you go on down, it, it says in, in verse 2, it starts out, hey, you. And then in verse 2, it says, listen carefully to me. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen. If you go on down to verse 6, seek the Lord, call upon him. Verse 7, return to the Lord and to our God. Okay, so on one side, our part is to listen, seek, call, draw near. He just is just asking any way. You know, if you're a visual person, look for him. If you're a hearing person, listen for him. If you're a kinetic person, seek for him. However it is he can get to you, he's calling you. The, The part that's his part is in there where it says, eat. Verse 2, be satisfied. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Verse 3, live. Verse 5, talks about glorifying Israel. He has glorified you. Verse 7, he will have compassion and he will abundantly pardon. So God's response to us seeking him out is to utterly satisfy us. To give us life and to pardon us completely. And this is the great promise of the Messiah. And embedded right in the middle of that, in the second half of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, where I bolded it for you, talks about the Messiah. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold... I have made him, that is the Messiah, a witness to the peoples. And I put in parentheses all peoples. Anytime you see the word peoples in scripture, it's not talking about the chosen people. It's talking about everybody, including the Gentiles. It says, behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, that would be the Gentiles, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. Here again, we see the pairing of 
life, which is what Jesus is going to get, God is going to give us, Jesus is giving us, and judgment. But it's very much the side that says your sins are forgiven. It's the promise to a believer. Okay. The summary that I've selected, and you could pick it out of any number of places in the Bible to see this summarized, is Acts 10.42. And he, that is Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that he is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Okay, So there you've got it summarized again, linking Jesus is the judge, but if you'll just believe in him, there is complete forgiveness and pardon. Okay, So you don't have to worry about being judged. You've already been judged, if you will. Jesus stood in that place for you. The second role that Jesus is holding as author of Revelation is as the firstborn of the dead. Now, obviously, when you think of that, you think resurrection, right? Okay. But think about this. Was Jesus the only one resurrected in the Bible? No. No. Who who else? Lazarus. Pardon me? Jared's daughter. Both Elijah and Elisha resurrected people. So there's, the, res, the Bible is just full of resurrections, if you will. There were people that were resurrected. If you remember, after Jesus, Jesus was resurrected, when he just it's kind of like by the power of his resurrection, a whole lot of people who had been dead were resurrected and were seen walking around um, at that time. So why is he called the firstborn, the first fruits of the dead, if there were all these other people who were resurrected? Well, the answer is that all those other people were resurrected to a perishable body. They died again. Okay? They died again. This resurrection of Jesus was to an imperishable body. He's the very first one that got an imperishable body. The same body that we will get when, we're, when we go to meet him in the skies. Right? Whether we be alive and be changed in a twinkling of an eye, or whether we're dead and resurrected, we all get a new body when we're resurrected. And that body is just like the one that Jesus got. And we're fixing to get a description of what that is. In fact, why don't we go there? It's just way cool. Um, Where does it talk about what he looks like? It's right here at the beginning. Ah, verse 13 of the first chapter of Revelation. Someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this is a description. We're fixing to read a description of the resurrected body. And I believe our bodies will, be, will look like this. He's the first fruits. We, we ought to be looking like the second fruits. Okay. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Pretty cool, huh? 
If we look on uh, your handout for the roles of Jesus, the next verse should be Colossians 1, 13 through 20, give or take a few verses. It says, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is also head of the body and the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And if you skip down to verse 19 a little bit, it says, For it was the Father's good, good pleasure uh, through him to reconcile all things to himself. Okay? God sent Jesus specifically to reconcile us to him. And the next verse there, 15, 20 through 26, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then the bolded part, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this is a verse specifically about things that we're going to study about in Revelation. About when Christ comes and utterly conquers death. What, do you, what kind of pops out in here is that here again we have linked resurrection, life, with judgment, pardon, forgiveness of sin. Very similar to that first role. It's just another way of saying it in a way. Now look at the third role. The third role is Jesus who rules the kings of the earth. What's interesting about that is that we know from our study of Daniel that that is a future role. When Jesus comes and rules the kings of the earth is a future role. Think about these three roles. The first role was as a faithful witness. That was referenced, as we saw, by his first coming. It's kind of a past role. It's not like the role ever goes away, but but that's when it happened. He came as a faithful witness the first time. The, The second one was a role as the first fruits, firstborn from the dead, the resurrected Christ. And he functions as a high priest for us now. He is before God interceding for us. That is a... His resurrected role is his present role, right? That's, that's where he is now. And that role will not pass away, but it began at his resurrection. The third role is as ruler of kings of the earth. And that third role will happen during these end times that we're, starting, we're studying about in Revelation. And it also will never pass away. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel has a vision, and he sees one like the Son of Man coming in clouds. And it's like a Son of Man. He just sees like a man coming in in clouds. And to him was given by the Ancient of Days glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Not just the Jews, everybody might serve him. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then there was another vision in chapter, uh, or another part of the interpretation in chapter 7. It talks about the Antichrist coming and how the Antichrist for a time is going to speak out against God. 
declare himself God and, quote, wear down the saints. Really, it's going to be a terrible time for the saints, for the people here on earth who are believers. But and that will happen for a time, times and half a time for three and a half years. And then the Ancient of Days is going to sit in judgment. The Antichrist will be uh, his power will be utterly destroyed. All the previous, this last nations that we've gone through, the nations of the Gentiles will be utterly destroyed. Their power will be destroyed, wiped out, and the, thro- and the throne of Jesus will be established here on earth. It's going to be a very physical thing. But when Jesus comes, he's coming in that imperishable body. By the time that happens, we will have been resurrected into our imperishable bodies. We're going to be somewhat awesome as a team. (laughs) And what it says there that I've bolded in that last bit from Daniel 7.27 is, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. You see, he's not just king of the Jews, he's also king of the Gentiles. And we are going to reign with him when he comes. Now, if you think back, now that we've looked kind of a little bit closer at these roles of Jesus, think about what those roles are saying to you as a believer. Is that a message of indignation, wrath? Anger in any way towards you as a believer? No. That is a great, that is Jesus in his role as Savior. Jesus in his role as someone who has stood in our place and has taken the judgment for us. It, if you're not a believer, then you can start thinking about wrath and indignation. There is going to be judgment. Okay. But we are not part of that wrath and indignation. So we're going to read a whole lot of wrath and indignation in Revelation. We need to keep this in perspective as to what that means for a believer. Okay? Because we're reading it kind of from our perspective. And I gave you a couple of verses that you can refer to. John 3.17 and Romans 8.2. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. But to save it, there is no eternal doom awaiting those who trust him to save them. So there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit, and this power is mine through Christ Jesus, has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. And not only are we completely forgiven, but we're not sneaking into heaven. We are not just scraping by. We are a kingdom of priests and kings. We don't think of ourselves that way, and we don't walk in that very often. Okay? And, and, and you don't want to like go around with your nose stuck up in the air. It's definitely a time to remember why you're in that place, that it's entirely from the grace of God. But that was set up as the role of the Jew. That was intended to be who the Jews were. When, uh, in Exodus 19.3, there's a, one of many passages, but it talks about 
how Moses went up to the mountain and God said, I want you to go down and tell the nation of Israel what I've told you. And I want you to tell them that if they keep my covenant and obey, the, and obey me, that out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So where do I get Gentiles out of that? You know, that's definitely Jews. Okay, he was talking about taking the Jews out and making them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I'm going to break one of my own rules and let's peek ahead in Revelation. But if you look in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, certainly Paul, Peter and Paul talk a great deal about how the Gentiles were grafted in and, and were given the promise of the Jews. But Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 lays it out explicitly. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That is a confirmation of what the prophecies that we saw in Daniel of the teachings of Paul and Peter that we as Gentiles have been bought by Jesus and we share in that kingship. At, at verse 5, we're, we're to the end of the description of the authorship. First, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, you hit what's called the first doxology. It's like John just pauses and he's just totally overwhelmed with the spirit of the Lord's presence. And he says, To him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That verse is a picture of what it means to be in the fear of the Lord. Remember we talked about that last week some? It's not a state of hide in the corner I'm afraid, unless you're not a believer. But for a believer, it is a state of such reverence and awe and openness to God that he can reveal to your mind and to your heart and to your spirit things that otherwise you would not intellectually understand. Okay? That that verse is a, a picture of where John was when he got this revelation. Verse 7. Behold, he, he, John kind of shakes himself off and picks up with the narrative here. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. The word mourn here literally means beat your breast. Okay, it's everybody in the world is just when they see when we see Jesus come on the clouds, we are going to be overwhelmed with our sense of unworthiness. We are going to be overwhelmed with the knowledge of what we've done to him. We will be convicted of our collective sin. 
and the verse does refer to all the tribes of tribes of the earth that's everybody Gentiles every uh, believers unbelievers but it also makes special reference to those who pierced him now that is a specific reference to the Jews okay it is understood in scripture and we're going to look at that here in a minute to to mean the Jews and it is almost a direct quote of an Old Testament passage it's not a New Testament quote it is an Old Testament quote we're going to look at it in a second but there's a big contrast in this verse 7 between what the Jews are called to be which is a kingdom of priests and what they were at the time those who pierced Jesus and yet here in this one verse both of those roles for the Jews are reconciled through Jesus to to God and there is and we need to keep in mind as we're going through that there's a big difference between what happens to the Jews and what happens to the Gentiles we're on different paths we're on different paths to the same end but as we're going through Revelation, we need to understand how the, where those paths meet and cross and are different. And one of the foundational concepts that we need to understand Revelation is the salvation of the Jews. And here's a handout for you on the salvation of the Jews. Throughout Old Testament, it is prophesied that the Jews will be saved. Sometimes as Christians, we get the... the misconception that because the Jews crucified Jesus like it's over and done with they're out of here they lost their heritage and that is not what God says at all and so we're going to take a minute to look at just a few places in scripture you, you can't read the Old Testament without running across this one um, and I've pulled out a couple of places for you the first two verses were out of Isaiah 45 and I've just excerpted a couple of verses for you that says Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity pretty clear in the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory that's not just some of them that's all of them Jeremiah 31 31 Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the covenant they broke in the land of Egypt. This new covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. That, that phrase is used in scripture to refer to end times. Okay? After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more Ezekiel I will vindicate the holiness of my great name see Jesus God is saying I'm doing this for me you are my possession and you have embarrassed me (laughs) and I am going to save you so that 
all the nations on earth will know that I truly am God. And I can do any. If I can save you, I can save anybody. It's about what he's saying. <laughs> then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. And he goes on and says he he will begin rebuilding their waste places and their cities. This is a promise to the Jews in the end times when Jesus comes in person to Jerusalem to rebuild it. It's not talking about him coming and being crucified and this whole Gentile thing that we're going through now. It's talking about the Jews at the end. He's going to come save them. He has a plan for them. And they are going to be pardoned. I mentioned the, you know, after those days, and there's a little phrase at the end of the Ezekiel thing of on the, the day. In Romans 11, there's a bold part in there where Paul says, a part, you know, don't be snotty if you're a Gentile. says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Basically until we've been saved. And until our sin, our collective sin as a nation, as kind of the, the last ruling nations on earth, come to their fullness. Till our transgression and our sin has reached its fullness. So that fullness is fullness in a couple of senses. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, the salvation of Israel throughout Old Testament prophecy is linked to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is also a phrase that you can understand when you read in Scripture is that is specific to the end time. Okay, that very great and terrible day. Uh, and Micah talks about the fact, Micah 7 verses 9 through 19, talk about the fact that Israel has sinned against him. He will bring me out to the light. I will see his righteousness and then my enemy will see and understand. And I'm just kind of skipping through the bold parts there. The earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then there's a terrific prophecy in Zechariah about the day of the Lord that tells us what that's going to be like. It says a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. He says all the nations of, of all the nations of the world are going to come attack Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be captured. It will be plundered and the Jews will be losing the battle. It will be their hour of most dire need. 
their actual existence as a nation will be threatened. Then look at verse three. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's Jesus coming. When the Mount of Olives, when the Lord God stands on the Mount of Olives and it's split in half, Jesus comes. And look who comes with him. All the holy ones. I think that's us. It will be a unique unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. This is confirmed in Old Testament prophecy also in in Daniel chapter 12. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, your people being Daniel's people, the Jews, will be rescued. And finally, that direct quote that I would promise to tell you in Zechariah 12, 8 through 10. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So now we know what day they're talking about, right? It's it's that, that last day. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In that day... I will set up out about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, everything I read you was from the Old Testament. These are foundational, foundational promises to Jews. They know these verses by heart. This is their great salvation. This is the Messiah they're looking for. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus. They, they were not looking in the spirit. They were looking for the, you know, the Mount of Olives splitting apart and coming on clouds and things like that. And now that we know that that's the audience that John is talking to. Now go back and read Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That is a direct quote from that passage in Zechariah. The Jews always thought that it was Jehovah God who was coming But in the day of the Lord, God does come, but Jesus comes on the clouds. And Jesus told us this in Matthew 24, and I have some scripture references for you for just the rest of the things we'll talk about today. And in Matthew 24, Jesus says himself, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. There's that phrase again. Okay, Jesus is quoting out of that passage in Zechariah. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The Jews in that single day will see Jesus and will recognize him. They will be saved. 
Jesus' second coming is not a warm, teddy bear, fuzzy, hymn-singing, heart-playing day. It is a day of great wrath and great salvation. Well, that's a whole lot about the Jews. What about the Gentiles? You know, where do we fit in to all of this? And that's what comes next in Revelation. Revelation verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The reference to the Lord's day there is commonly understood to be a reference to Sunday. That day presumably had been a special day to Christians ever since the resurrection of the Lord on the first day of the week, Sunday. And I gave you in your scripture references in one box the three verses that people hang their hat on for that one. It's John 20 that talks about the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst. And said, peace be to you. People take that to mean that the disciples had gathered for first day prayer and celebration and Jesus came. Doesn't exactly say that, but that's what we read into it. Acts 20 says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That's in verse 7. Paul began talking to them. So that gives you a little bit more specific on the first day of the week. We were coming back And having communion, either having communion in remembrance of Jesus or we were just having a meal on the first day. Okay, you can see it either way. And then 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, Paul is saying, you know, don't wait till I get there to take up a collection. Because at that time, many of the Jews and many of the new churches, especially the the one in Jerusalem, were just under horrible persecution. They could not make a living. They were literally starving to death and so when Paul went out on his journeys he would take up collections and he's saying don't wait till I get there to take the collection up you know every first you know the first day of every week each one of you put aside something and save it for this particular purpose and that's in a sense where we get our you know Sunday collections is that same kind of a a thing that that's it that's the sum total of Sunday in the in the in the Bible the reason I bring it up is that that seems to be a reasonable interpretation to me. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Sunday that, that, Jesus, that John was meditating and receiving this revelation. What it is not is the day of the Lord. Okay? And many commentators will try to tell you that John was transported in the spirit to the day of the Lord and told to write these letters to the churches. I don't find that consistent with the context of sitting down and writing these seven letters. You know, the, these seven letters don't really talk about the day of the Lord, it, like we just read about in Zechariah. Okay. You're, you're free to think whatever you think. It, the revelation is what it is, but those are the two sides of that particular interpretation. What's important that is that he says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And we looked last week at what the number seven meant and the fact that in Scripture, number seven is 
always associated with a com- or almost always 99% of the time a complete work of God something that God is doing now it may not be a nice warm fuzzy fun thing that God is doing okay it can be a judgment but it's something that is initiated by God it's whole and it's complete and that would be especially true when you see it in prophecy and and so what I mentioned last week was although these are seven literal churches I think they also represent the church as a whole a complete work of God chapter 1 verse 12 through 16 then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and then comes the description of Jesus and his glorified body and it says in his right hand he held seven stars now the glorified body we talked about but there's two important symbols that you see in these verses the seven lampstands and the seven stars before we read ahead don't read ahead <laughs> close your book <laughs> we, I want to do just a quick little exercise with you about interpreting these lampstands and these stars in light of scripture so that you begin to get kind of a sense of confidence with the approach that we're taking in your scripture handouts there is a verse from, or a little box of verses from Exodus that, that describe the furnishings of the tabernacle this is when God first ordained a holy house a church of any kind this is the mosaic tabernacle Okay, God said to make a golden lampstand pure gold and on that lampstand will be seven lamps burning continually in his presence and they did that they lighted the lamps before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses okay one lampstand with seven you know candles lamps on it throughout scripture if you go back and look at what lamps are when they're used symbolically when they're not just something sitting on the table lamps refer to the spirit or the essence of a man or group of men and I've given you some some scriptures uh, to show you that in 2nd Samuel 21 verse 17 it talks about David had gone out to battle he nearly got killed scared everybody to death they said no way are you going out and leading the charge anymore you're staying back in the camp so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished okay. it's referring to David as the lamp of Israel his, his life 1st Kings 11 to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem this is talking about David's descendants this is when the kingdom split between the north and the south Israel and Judah and virtually everybody went with the north and God said I'm, I'm going to re- reserve a tribe for you in the, in the south that will continue the Davidic lineage okay, that will continue David's inheritance so that David will have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem he's referring to the fact that there will always be someone on David's throne in Jerusalem the Proverbs 13, 8, uh, 13 9 the light of the righteous rejoices but the lamp of the wicked go out Okay, it's a symbolic reference meaning the essence of that person 
Proverbs 20, 27. The spirit of, a, of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Isn't that interesting? That your spirit is, it's almost like the Lord inside you, shining a spotlight and searching out everything in you. Your spirit is what does that. And very similar to the references in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit searches God himself and is able to communicate, that Holy Spirit is able to communicate with our spirit. It's just overwhelming how God set us up to be so connected to him. But it says that spirit is the lamp of the Lord. And then, of course, the one, this little light will shine. You are the light of the world, right? And then in Matthew 6:22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, remember what we did last week where we saw the eyes of the Lord were symbolic of the Spirit. Remember the seven eyes of the Lord, the seven spirits of the Lord. Jesus is talking symbolically here too. He doesn't mean if you're blind, you're you know, in spiritual darkness. He means if, if that eye, that light of your body, the lamp of your body is blind, is dark. So, conclusion would be... We would expect, when we see an interpretation of, that, of the seven lampstands that Jesus has, that he's standing among in Revelation, we would expect those lampstands to represent groups of men, spirits, the essence of men, right? If that symbol is being used consistently with the rest of Scripture. Okay, let's look at the seven stars. Throughout Scripture, stars are used symbolically to represent spiritual heavenly beings. Now, they can be good beings or bad beings, okay? Another word is heavenly hosts, okay? Morning stars, there's a whole lot of references. And we, those of you who are in the Daniel class, we went through every single reference in the Bible, looked at all of them one time because it was so important. I haven't done that to you this time. If you want to see all of the references, you can go to the Daniel handouts that are on the web and and download the one that's titled Host of Heaven, and you'll see all of the references. This is just an excerpt. Deuteronomy 4, 18 and 19. Be aware not to lift your eyes to heaven and see the sun... The moon, the stars, quote, all the host of heaven, okay, and be drawn away to worship them as idols. So there it's saying sun, moon, and stars equals host of heaven, okay? That's in a positive. It's not and the host of heaven. It's comma, host of heaven. Revelation, this is another break the rule, skip ahead. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify To you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus calls himself a star. And there is apparently a hierarchy of stars. Little stars, moons, suns, okay, morning stars. There there seems to be a spiritual hierarchy. Some are greater than others. Isaiah 14.3. This is a bad star. It will be in the day of the Lord when... When the Lord gives you rest from from pain, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. All right? This refers to a fallen star. And there's lots of references 
in Scripture to fallen stars. It's talking about fallen heavenly beings, spiritual entities. The star, it's like there, there's a physical representation, there's a spiritual reality. Okay? And God, just like for us in our bodies, we're a physical rep- representation of a spiritual reality. Okay? There, there is good and there is bad. And the star of Babylon was apparently a star of the morning, a morning star. We're talking upper echelon. Jesus called himself a morning star. That's, that's how, how much power Babylon okay, was given. And yet it fell and is able to exercise that power for bad, for evil. Job 34. Where were you? This God talking to Job saying, what are you complaining about? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who, who, who do you think you are to ask me why I'm doing something? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All right. The morning stars were there at the creation. So, now let's skip ahead, because we would expect those stars, when we see the interpretation, if it's consistent with Scripture, we would expect those stars to represent some kind of spiritual being, a spiritual heavenly reality associated with a physical something on earth. Now let's look at the interpretation. Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It fits exactly with what we would expect from studying scripture. This is what Jesus was talking to the Jews about. If you had truly known the scripture, if you had really studied and not just memorized you would have recognized me because you would have known what to expect. And that is the blessing that is attendant to those who study Revelation. We will know what to expect. And we will not be deceived. We're almost done. We want to back up to verse 19. We passed a a pivotal verse there. Therefore, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This sentence gives us the organizational structure of the vision of Revelation. Okay? It tells us, it tells us in advance it's going to be organized three ways. One, the things that you have seen. Okay, stop here. We have Revelation, you know, many more chapters. We know exactly how it ends. Okay. What has John seen up to this point? All he's seen is the authorship, the role of, of, of the Spirit, God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And he's seen the vision of Jesus with the lampstands and the stars. Okay? So, he wrote it down. That's what we just read. Alright, so that's part one. Now, the next thing we would expect to be a transition. Okay, because he's done with the things he's seen. The next thing is 
the things which are. So we would expect some section of Revelation to deal with the things which currently exist. And then we would expect to see a transition to the things which will take place after these things. So that's kind of awkward sentence structure, but it's the things that will take place after the things which are go away. Okay? So we're going to see, in the, hopefully, we would expect to see in the next class a discussion of the things which are, and then at some point we're going to recognize, we will be watching for and will recognize in Revelation when those things pass away and the things that come after that begin to be discussed.